Well, as we do what we do here, opening the word and putting ourselves under it, holding it high and submitting ourselves to it, we find that every week it interacts with our life in some way, sometimes explaining the great blessings of life or showing us what the Christian life looks like or revealing sin to us. Some weeks it helps us by coming alongside us and speaking to the harder aspects of life, some of those mysterious, difficult sufferings that we are going through that that we just don't understand. Occasionally, the Word of God sheds light on it or at least gives to His people encouragement. And this chapter that we'll read today, where the people of God suffer greatly under His hand, I pray it will be one of those weeks for us. Uh, Here's the particular suffering that I pray the Lord speaks to today. Some of us here in this room are still suffering today from some sin that we committed long ago. Some of us can trace our current sufferings back to things we did in the past we shouldn't have done, and the effects of those sins are still lying heavy upon us today. And this can be true even for Christians, even for the people of God who have found forgiveness for our sins. We still find sometimes real-world consequences that don't go away when we find forgiveness, or real-world consequences that don't go away when we repent under God's hand and confess our sins and look to Him for forgiveness. Uh, I think of, for instance, there are several Christian men who today are good fathers, who have adult children and for the last few years of their childhood and through their whole adulthood have been good, faithful fathers to them. But we're not always good fathers. Used to be terrible fathers. Uh, The Lord came into their life and changed their life, brought the gospel to them, made them new. They became a good father. And now to this day, they can look back and say, I was a bad father. The Lord made me a good father. But their adult children still despise them. Now, that's difficult, and it's tough to explain. How can it be that 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 could still be falling upon me after I repented and after I changed, and and my son still hates me to this day? Uh, That's tough to square in the eye. Uh, Sometimes young men uh, will habitually use pornography uh, and then turn from it, repent from it. Christian men say, well, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm done with it. And then they'll get married, and they'll find that one of the side effects of using pornography, some of the side effects of using pornography, uh, make marital happiness very difficult to come by. Uh, Some of those side effects even make men sometimes physically incapable of coming together with their wives, and they're looking back saying, I turned from that, I repented from it, and yet I'm still suffering as a consequence of the sin that I committed. Uh, On and on we could go, and I wonder if we could just interview everybody in the room and we could all speak to something we've done in our past that still comes back and haunts us, even though we've turned from it, even though we have repented of it. When that happens, it feels like God is against you. Otherwise, why wouldn't he take the suffering away? Or it can feel like God has abandoned you, and maybe all these other people have experienced forgiveness, but because I'm still suffering for my sin, maybe I haven't quite repented all the way, or maybe something isn't just lining up quite right, and I haven't received what everyone else has received. This morning, as we watch the people of God suffer greatly, 
those of you that can say, yeah, that's me. I can think of some way today that my life is worse off because of something I did in the past. Uh, my prayer is that the Lord would speak a powerful word of encouragement to you. He means this morning to give to all of us encouragement if we are suffering under the hand of past sins. Let's look together at 2 Kings 25. We are going to finish this morning our series going through First and Second Kings. And the setup is this. Uh, we started in 1 Kings early on in the golden age of Solomon. Everything was great. And because of the people's sin, things got worse and worse every week. And every week I have told you that this would end with the terrors of deportation at the Babylonian exile. Uh, this week, we get to those very terrors of the deportation at the Babylonian exile. This is the second wave of that deportation. What has happened is there was already, uh, King Babylon has risen, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has risen to power, conquers everything he sees. He is now the world's great power. He sets his sight on Jerusalem, on the people of God, comes to the city, lays siege to the city, and so the king, Jehoiachin, the heir of David, has no choice but to give himself up to the king of Babylon. He and most of his court are taken away, put in prison, and the king of Babylon puts a new king in place, an illegitimate king, the uncle of the true heir and true king. He renames this new king Zedekiah, and he tells him, okay, if you will follow me, you get to enjoy all the benefits of the throne in Jerusalem. He reinstates new government over Jerusalem. And this works for a few years until the new king, Zedekiah, decides to rebel against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes back to exact vengeance upon him and upon Jerusalem. And this is the vengeance that he exacts. 2 Kings 25. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, and the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest people in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord 
and the stands of the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away all the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in temple service, the fire pans and also the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the strands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze, and the height of the capital of bronze was three cubits. A latticework of pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzard and the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who had remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mitzpah, namely Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and Joannan, son of Kiriah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumath, the Neophathite, and Jazaniah, the son of the Mechathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the ninth month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to raid, reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seat of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. The words of the Lord. Through this dark story, the Lord encourages believers who are still to this day suffering under real-world consequences of our past sin. Uh, I think probably all of us in the room could think of at least one small way that our life would be better today if it were not for something we had done in the past. At least something small, like, well, if I hadn't been so short with my, life, my wife for the last 20 years, my marriage would be a little sweeter today. Or perhaps something large like the examples I gave you before, some great looming sin deep in your past that still bothers you and harasses you to this day. 
Through stories like this, the Lord means to encourage us and to point us home in the right direction. Now, to make that connection and see how we could look at it that way, uh, we have to see how these words are a fulfillment of a promise that was made to King David several generations before. And so one of the early things we're going to do right now is we're going to flip back to 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 through 16. And I think what you will see there is that everything we just read about here is a fulfillment of everything we're about to read in this promise. Now, the people in today's story are the descendants of David's kingdom. And King Jehoiachin is the heir and descendant of King David. So when the Lord starts talking about his descendants and heir, Jehoiachin is one of the people that he is talking about. Here's what the Lord promises to King David in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's the promise made to King David. And what we see today in 2 Kings 25 is a fulfillment of both sides of that promise. Here's how it worked. David was promised that after his life, his sons would reign in the kingdom after him. This is one of the greatest desires of any king, to see a dynasty go long after him. Well, David has promised you will receive that. And the Lord says not only this, but to your descendants, I will act as a father. He shall be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. And there are two sides to this. On one hand, David's descendant, the king of Judah, the heir of David, would receive God's discipline when he did wrong. He says, I will discipline him with the stripes of men. So when the king does wrong, the Lord will do something to discipline him. And on the other hand, because the king is a son of God in this way, uh, the Lord will never abandon him. And so the house of David will have no end. So Two real-world life changes for this person. Because he's a son of God, he receives discipline from God when he does wrong. But no matter how dark that discipline gets, the Lord will never abandon him, and the line of David never cut off. What that means practically for Israel is that if Israel, Judah, and her kings were to sin against God, things could become very dark. They could get really difficult. But no matter how dark it got the light would never go out. The line of David would never be snuffed out. He would always have an heir either on the throne or ready to take the throne. This is something of what it means for the kings to be sons of God in this way. What we see in 2 Kings 25 is the fulfillment of both sides of that promise of sonship. On one hand, The Lord's discipline for his people had stored up over generations, and finally the stroke of it falls upon the kings of Judah. On the other hand, at the end of the story, we see that no matter how dark it got, the light never goes out. Jehoiachin, the heir of David, 
still lives on. And so for another day, the house of David will continue. So two sides to that promise. Do we see both sides of that? Is that clear? We got that? Yeah? Okay, y'all aren't moving much. Yes, no? Yeah, okay, got it. All right, all right, so we got that. Now we pull that, we apply that to today's story. Let's turn back to 2 Kings 25. And in the first part of it, the longer part, we see all the difficult discipline they endure and just how bitter it is. Let me walk you through that. In verses one through three, what we see is the king of Babylon come and lay his second siege against the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This siege lasts at least a year and a half. They run out of food and all of their supplies are cut off. Now, a siege is when you take your army and you surround a city so that no one can get in or out. And the city has no choice but to raise up the gates, shut themselves up and just cut themselves off from the world. Now, they're safe when they do that, but there's no way to get food in and out of the city and no way to get medical supplies in and out of the city, no way to get anything in and out of the city. So you have a lot of people in a densely crowded city with no food, not much water, no medical supplies, and none of the things that they need. And then for the outside army, it's just a waiting game. How long until they give up, right? So Jerusalem then runs out of food. They run out of supplies. We saw last year what people do to each other when they're under distress, right? Last year was just mild distress, but people began to turn on each other. Uh, These people begin to turn on each other greatly. There are stories in other parts of the Bible of mothers eating their children and just terrible things that went on during this siege and some of the other sieges. Things are already this bad. And then in verses four through seven, a breach gets made in the wall And so the king and some of his army try to escape and just get out. But they're pursued and they get caught. They drag the king and his family before King Nebuchadnezzar. And in what just sounds like the most striking part to me, uh, they slaughter the king's sons in front of him. And then they put the king's eyes out so that the last thing he ever sees is the slaughter of his own sons. This was to put fear in the heart of the next king. So the next king would say, okay, I'm going to do what the king of Babylon says. In verses 8 through 12, we see many of the important buildings in Jerusalem burned. The temple where God rested his presence burned to the ground. Uh, We see the palace burned. The great important houses of Jerusalem burned, sending a message. You are not Jerusalem anymore. You are part of Babylon. In verses 13 to 17, we see the temple raided and all of its treasures taken out of it. The bronze, the gold, and the silver all just taken out. It sounds like it's just melted down for the value of its minerals and not for its sentimental value, broken apart and taken out. In verses 18 through 21, we see many of the leaders in Jerusalem taken back to the king of Babylon at a place called Rizpah. Uh, where before the king, they are all slaughtered and killed. And then finally, in verses 22 through 26, we see a new king put in place. He tries to lead and does his best to rally everybody together, but shortly thereafter, he's assassinated. Uh, Then when he's assassinated, the people who did it and everybody else realize, oh no, the Babylonians are going to come back and do the same thing again. And so everybody flees, leaving almost no one left in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. This is, this chapter is rock bottom for Israel. This is as bad as it gets. 
And as we read it, and we suffer through it, and we say, Is it, could it really be that bad? Would the Lord in his sovereign hands have the king's eyes put out after he sees his own son slaughtered? Can it really get that bad? The first thing we see is an encouragement to us who look at our sufferings and say, could it really be this bad? I mean, I mean, could it be that the people of God would suffer this very much, sometimes even as consequences for our own sin? So the first word we get this, then is an encouragement that simply says, you're not making it up if you feel like your own suffering is that bad. Sometimes it really does get that bad for the people of God. Sometimes it really is that hard. So the first point then is that sometimes the earthly consequences of our sins are exceedingly bitter, and sometimes they endure for our whole life, even for the people of God. Yes, it really can get that bad. The second point, though, comes from the end of the story. In verses 27 through 30, the direction of the whole book changes. All of a sudden, the heir of King David, Jehoiachin, who has been in prison for 37 years, is lifted up out of prison, given a seat of honor at the king's table, and gets to eat like a king for the rest of his life. Do you notice the the change in plot direction here? We've been going through this from 1 Kings all the way to now. It's just gotten darker and darker and darker every week, right? More tragedy, more tragedy, more tragedy, more tragedy. The very last paragraph is one of hope. The plot changes directions at the end. Why does the Lord do that? Well, to signal the change in direction that is going to happen to the story now, to give them hope. So they can say, wait a minute, it got this bad, and yet the Lord kept his promise and preserved the heir of David. He must not have abandoned us completely. He must still intend to keep his promise. It must be that this Jehoiachin, whose life was preserved, still has an heir alive today, and perhaps one day his heir will come. And if the heir of Jehoiachin comes, well, then perhaps the Lord will forgive us for our sins if we have a good king once again. Perhaps our relationship with God will be restored to what it once was. Perhaps we will have a good king who will lead us in good ways and establish justice and equity who we can trust and who we can follow. Maybe God will dwell again with his people and maybe he will say again that he is our God and we are our people. Maybe. If this Jehoiachin ever produces an heir who will take to the throne. So the the direction of the plot has changed. Things can only go up from here. And in truth, the hope of Israel would be fulfilled in just this way. The story is meant to leave them hoping that better days would come. And indeed, they would spend 70 years in exile. Then they would get to come back home. But it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be like before. They wouldn't live under a son of David as king. They'd live under foreign occupation for several centuries. And then, one day, the heir of Jehoiachin would be a man named Joseph. He would be traced in Matthew 1 as the rightful heir to this Jehoiachin. This man named Joseph would be engaged to and then marry a woman who is a virgin, 
Yet she is pregnant, and the reason she is pregnant is because she has conceived a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this child that would be born would be both Joseph's heir and would be the son of God. This baby would then be born, and angels would appear in the skies, and they would say, we bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The heir of Jehoiachin did indeed come, and they called his name Jesus, son of God and son of Jehoiachin, who we see lifted up in this very story. Now, this Jesus, this king, would be the very king they were looking for, right? They were looking for a king who, under his rule, they would find forgiveness, and they would find their relationship with God restored. And they would find a good king who gives good laws. And they would find God dwelling with his people again. And this Jesus would offer this not just to the people of Israel, but to anyone who would look to him and trust him for these things. Anyone who would look to him and say, I need forgiveness for my sins. Jesus, would you give it to me? Anyone who would look to him and say, I need a king to follow who will give me good ways. I don't know how to make it along in this life, but would you give me good laws to follow and would look to him in faith? Anyone who would look to him and say, I need God with me. Jesus, would you be God and dwell with me? Anyone who would look to him as Savior and Lord and King and God with us. We call this in the church, we call this faith. And that is trusting Jesus to be everything that he says he is. This Jesus came for them and their hopes were fulfilled. But he didn't just come for them, he came for you and I too. And so for some of us, the reason the story of Jehoiachin was preserved, the reason his life was preserved, he was lifted up out of prison, and that story told for us today is so that we could place our faith in his heir who did come, his heir, Jesus Christ, the only Lord. And so I call you now, as Israel would have then, place your hope in the heir of Jehoiachin, in Jesus Christ, your king, who has come for you. For those of us that have, uh, there's profound meaning here as well. Many of us have placed our faith in this Jesus. We would say we are his people. And many of us, as I've said a few times now, could say, even though I'm one of God's people, I still suffer because of something wrong I did a long time ago. Uh, Is there anything for me here that would help me to unpack that and understand it? And and the answer is yes, there is much for God's people here. Uh, The main truth comes down to this. Uh, God does not abandon his sons. He disciplines us for our good. And all of the suffering in our lives can be explained through that lens. That means that your suffering today for your past sins is not a sign that God does not love you. It is actually a sign that God does love you because the Lord does not abandon his sons. He disciplines his sons for our good. Now you might ask, how how can that be, right? Well, let me unpack it for you. The promise to David was to your sons, to your heir as king, I'll be a father, right? I'll discipline him and I will never put the light out at the same time. Disciplined and never abandoned. 
fathers discipline their sons, don't they? Fathers want their sons to grow up into holy men, into good men, into faithful men. And so they say things to their sons like, if you do this thing you should not do, I will do this painful thing to you, right? Or if you do this other thing that you should not do, I will choose maybe or maybe not to do this other thing to you, right? There are consequences for your actions, and son, I will administer them in your life, even though they will be painful for you. And then they come back and they follow through on those warnings, and they say, okay, you you did what you weren't supposed to do. I told you what would happen. Here is what's going to happen now. And so when the son bites his kindergarten teacher, the father says, Son, here is what happens to men who hurt women and men who spurn authority. Why does he do that? Because he wants his son to grow into a good man, right? A man who doesn't hurt women, a man who doesn't spurn authority in his life. Fathers discipline their sons for their good, even though it is unpleasant at the time. That's part of a father-son relationship. That's important because if you are a Christian, The Lord treats you as a son as well and invites you to call him father as well. First John, I'm sorry, John 1 says, to those who did receive Jesus and believe upon his name, he gives us the right to become children of God, right? And Jesus teaches us to pray our our father who is in heaven, right? And it says later, how great the love lavished on us that we'd be called children of God, right? He relates to us as a son, And the reason he does that in the way he does it, at least part of the reason, is that he actually intends for us to be kings and queens in the future as well. He intends to send his son to return for us. And when he does return for us, he will raise us up from the graves or if we're alive, raise us up in the air and rule the earth himself, a new creation that he will one day make, ruling it with us, his people, as his princes and princesses there in the kingdom. So, If you're a Christian, you may not know this, but the destiny God has for you is authority, rule, and power in his kingdom one day under his high kingship. So you, like David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and all of the ones after them, are destined to be a king for God's glory. And so today, he disciplines you to make you holy and to make you wise. This works in our life in at least two different ways. Uh, And the Bible uses the word discipline for both of them. Sometimes our suffering has nothing to do with anything we've ever done wrong, right? It's just the Lord is putting something in our life and it's to make us stronger. Uh, This would be somewhat like a coach who looks to an athlete and says, you're doing a great job. We've got a contest coming up and I have a really difficult workout for you. But the point isn't to punish you, right? The point is to make you stronger for the contest that is coming up. Well, James 1 says, count it all joy when you endure any sufferings of various kind because that produces steadfastness, right? You grow stronger through your sufferings. Sometimes it's not a direct result of anything that you have done wrong. It's just the Lord putting a workout in your life. Now, the Bible uses the word discipline to talk about that in the same way that we would say, I need more discipline so that I'll do more push-ups, right? He uses the word discipline in that way. But that's not what 2 Kings 25 is about, is it? No, they had sinned against God and it was coming back to haunt them. And that's the other way that the Lord disciplines his people. Uh, He teaches us in his word the way to live. 
even outlines for us many of the real world consequences when we don't follow his ways. And then in his sovereign hand, he brings them upon us. Why does he do that? To make us holier, to make us stronger, to grow us in our faith. And if he's willing to do that, then it must be worth it. It must be worth all of this suffering just to grow little by little in holiness. Let me give you some examples. There is probably somewhere in the world today uh, a man who 20 years ago committed adultery against his wife. And the way it worked out for him was as a result, his wife left him and took the kids. And uh, he hasn't seen his wife now in 20 years and he rarely sees his kids. And he woke up this morning alone once again. Now let's say this man confessed his sin and repented 19 years ago. And for the last 19 years has been walking in holiness and yet still this morning woke up alone. Why would, the God, why would God do that in his life? Let me tell you what he has that we don't. He has every morning when he wakes up and tastes the bitterness of her not being there, a reminder that we all need. Sexual sin's a big deal. The Lord's ways are a big deal. Now, how much would we treasure some great reminder of how important the Lord's ways are and how big a deal sexual sin is every morning when we wake up? Would we not grow so much if we had that? Now, he has it through suffering, but he has such a great benefit and growth that we don't have access to. So there are ways in which that man is more blessed than some of us who do not taste as much bitterness in the aftermath of our sin. I'll give you another example. Let's say there's a woman who works a job and she figures the job out, gets comfortable, and once she gets comfortable at how to do the job, she just kind of coasts and gets lazy and doesn't realize that she is developing a reputation for laziness in the workplace. A few years go by and hard times come on the business and the boss says, we have to lay somebody off and you're contributing the least. We've seen how you work around here. We have to let you go. And it becomes plain to her that she has lost her job because of her laziness. And so she takes it to the Lord and says, Lord, I've been lazy. It was wrong. Will you forgive me? I rejoice in your forgiveness. Will you help me find a job? She goes to look for a job. She calls a friend who's working in another company now and says, hey, you think you can help me get on there? And her friend says, well, I want to, but when we worked together before, you were really lazy, and I don't know that I want to risk my reputation recommending you. She tries to go somewhere else and has a hard time finding a job there. It finds that her reputation still sticks with her. It's still following her around, even though she's repented of the sin and has changed. Now, why would the Lord do that in her life if she's already turned from sin? Well, we can see here the Lord never abandons his son. He always disciplines us for our good. She has continuing lessons now. Work ethic is important. Work ethic is a big deal. And she has in her life now every day a reminder of how good God's ways are and how seriously and zealously we must follow them. We could go on and on with this, but the point is the same. The Lord is growing us in holiness. And the Lord even says to that woman, I'm doing this in your life because I have a job for you. I intend to return and make you a queen in my kingdom. And every day from now till then, I will teach you a strong work ethic. 
So a summary of the word here to any of you who can, by now, pin some of your current sufferings on past sins. What's the Lord got to say to me? It's very simply, God has not abandoned you. Uh, In fact, he loves you and is interacting with you. This will not be forever. He has plans for you to lead and rule in his kingdom. And when you do, you will look back and say, every bit of this difficulty was worth it for what the Lord has done in my life. So if you can look in faith and and receive that, you might ask then, uh, what do I do today? Uh, How how do I live now? And I'll just give you three quick words, two of them from other places in the Bible, one of them from this text. First, don't despise God's discipline, but cherish it. The Lord says in Proverbs 3, and then he quotes himself in Hebrews 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, nor be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines the son he loves, and he chastises the son that he receives. And David, the first one to receive that promise that we talked about earlier, actually received the Lord's discipline in his life as well. It was bitter and difficult. And he can write in Psalm 119, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. Can you believe that? It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. Now, there's only one way that you can stack that up and make that logic work out, it must be that whatever growth you're receiving is worth all of the suffering in your life. It must be that whatever it is, you can look at it and say to become a little bit holier, to know a little bit more of the Lord's ways, to know a little bit more of how serious my sin is before him and be called to repentance, that is worth all of that suffering. Only then can you say, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. I'll tell you a story about this. Uh, Emily and I have a a mutual friend, uh, a family friend, who used to babysit our kids when they were really young, uh, somewhere where we used to live. And uh, we were talking to her recently because we caught up with her. She's graduated high school now. And she went through a homeschool curriculum thing that we're thinking about putting our kids through. And we had all kinds of questions about, okay, now that you're done with it, are you glad you did it? And she's telling us all kinds of things about it. We're trying to make this decision together here about what to do for our kids. And she told me a story. She said, well, you know, it is a lot of work, but looking back, I do feel like it was worth it. She told the story of the day that her homeschool group got a new tutor. Uh, And the way that it works is there's a very heavy workload. Students are expected to come prepared, and then the tutor walks them through applying some of the material. And she said, our old tutor, we would come and we'd do half the work and, you know, it was just a lot. And the tutor would say, I understand, like, we'll work with what we can work with here, Um, teach what she could. Then we got a new tutor and all of us, we all came to class unprepared like we always did, except this tutor wasn't having any of it. She said, after about a 20-minute lecture on how we needed to do our work, she said, you know what I'm going to do, guys? Uh, I'm still going to take your parents' money that they're paying me to tutor you today, uh, but I'm actually not going to teach you today. I'm going to say goodbye to your parents, and then I'm going to leave. And you guys spend this day doing the work that you were supposed to do to prepare for this day. 
Then I'll come back next week, and if you've done the work to prepare for next week, then I'll teach you. She went and said goodbye to the parents, and she left. And the kids were so mad. (laughs) And so then they go to the parent, but the parents stood by the tutor and said, no, you didn't do the work. You need to do the work. So angry, she and her friends came back the next week, and they did the work. And the week after that, they did the work, even though it was hard. And the third week, they did the work. And she looks back and she says, I was so mad, but I learned how to do the work. And so this 18-year-old had the wisdom to say, my tutor was right to do that. I was so angry at the time, but she was right to do that. Now, in the same way, the book of Hebrews says, no discipline is pleasant at the time, right? Later, it receives the, re- the reward of, of righteousness, bears the fruit of righteousness. And we can all be in our Christian lives like that young woman who can look back and say, God was right to do that because I learned. He used it to grow me. And it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn the Lord's ways. Second, much more quickly, uh, looking back on whatever the sin was, just make sure that you have fully repented of it and that you've enjoyed forgiveness from God in it. So often Christians will, you know, we know we're forgiven. And so we look at our sin and we say, okay, I need to work on that and get better. And I need to work on that and get better. Uh, But Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation, the ones that I love, I reprove. So be zealous and repent, right? When he he brings that into your life, he wants you to repent with zeal. What that looks like is very simply naming the sin before God and and saying, God, you already know I did this and you already know it was wrong, but here's what I did and it was wrong. You can only do that boldly if you know you're forgiven, right? So then you rejoice in the forgiveness of God and you ask for his help fighting it. This is different from just saying, I'm going to work on it now, right? This is cherishing the gospel and enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Make sure you have looked to him for forgiveness for whatever it is and have repented fully of it. As the Lord says, be zealous and repent. And third, this one comes more directly from the text today. Uh, You are looking for relief, right? You want the suffering to end. Where do you look for it? Look for it in the same place that this text encouraged the people of Israel to look for it, in the coming of Jesus Christ. The text left them longing for the heir of Jehoiachin to arrive, right? And you actually have the same hope, except it's just a little bit different. You're you're not looking for him to come. You're looking for him to come again, right? Because he promises he's going to come back. He came once and he is coming again. Now, I can't tell you how long the suffering will last and if it will last the rest of your life, but here's the promise the Lord makes to you. When his son returns, everything sad comes untrue. There will be no more death, no more tears, no more pain. You will be able to look back and say, I'm so glad my life unfolded that way because of what he has done in me now. That all comes and it all changes when the Lord returns. So pin your hopes on the return of Jesus Christ. Advent is coming. And we love everything about Advent, don't we? Uh, Don't forget that the point of it is to put in us a hope for the return of Jesus Christ. Spend this Advent longing for the return of Jesus when your sufferings are alleviated. So don't despise the Lord's discipline. Cherish it. Make sure you've fully repented of whatever it is. You may still suffer afterwards. Make sure you get the, the grace there. 
and look for relief at Jesus' return. What I want to do now is pray and just offer you guys a chance to, that there may be some past thing that's on your mind right now that you just want to deal with. We'll walk through that in prayer together and, uh, and ask the Lord to help us with it. So let's pray together.